So many people love to restore things as a hobby. This isn't one of my hobbies, but it's fairly common. You can restore almost anything that's old or broken and in need of some TLC. Lots of people will, will go into classic cars, and that's just apparently quite the money pit if you're trying to restore a classic vehicle. Other people will use a sports memorabilia and things that they can get their hands on and, and bring back to new, and, or, or different, any type of antiques. In fact, a few years ago, I went through this phase where I was watching a lot of American Pickers and American Restoration. Two different shows, but they had a lot of overlap episodes because the pickers would go in into people's storage sheds and barns and, and houses and, and try to find these hidden gems of antiques that were actually quite valuable, many of which had been neglected for so long that they were no longer in very good shape. And so then they would bring them to the guys of American Restoration and say, hey, how much to bring this back to like it was when it was new? And they'd look at it and be like, oh, it's $2,000. You know, it's like the opposite of Pawn Stars. They start the really high number. That's $2,000. And they'd be like, sure, we're going to go for it. Every time. And I was like, who in the world is paying that much money for these things? But apparently it was worth it. Because restoration is where we get that phrase, something is as good as new. Something is as good as new. That's the whole goal. Is to spend the money, to spend the time, to put in this effort, so that your end product is something that looks exactly like it was when it rolled out of the factory, when it was driven for the first time whatever the case may be. In our story today, Simon Peter finds himself in need of restoration as we encounter a breakfast conversation between him and the resurrected Jesus. Of course, Peter didn't need the same type of restoration as a classic car, but he was someone that needed to be made good as new. And if we're honest, we all find ourselves in this situation, sometimes physically, often emotionally, and always spiritually. Sometimes it's through neglect. Sometimes we've been broken. Sometimes we've gotten dirty and we need to be made new. For Peter, it was his denial of Christ three times during his trial. And Peter, like all of us, then have fallen short of God's perfection, find ourselves dirty, stained, and broken. And how good is it that Jesus desires to make us good as new? So with that in mind, I'd invite you now to open up your Bibles. We're going to spend some time in the Gospel of John, chapter 21, and particularly looking at verses 15 to 19. Um, but you can open that up there. You can keep your place. And we're going to jump around a little bit more than usual today. And so you can follow along with me. Uh, we're going to go over this story. And we're going to learn just in what way Jesus restored Peter. And we're also going to learn for what reason Peter was restored. So as you open up your Bibles there, would you also pray with me? God, it is a, it's a good day to be gathered together as your people. It is a good day to encounter the truth of your word. I pray even for myself that you would give me the voice necessary to make it through this sermon and also the, the question and answer after. I pray for all of those who are, are listening that it would not be my voice that, that captures their attention or even their concern or focus, but instead it would be your still voice, the soft voice of your spirit at work within us, making us good as new. God, I pray that in whatever situation has made us feel stained and broken and neglected, that we would meet you here and that we would know that you have better in mind for us. We thank you for that and we pray this in all in your name. Amen. So what is happening in John chapter 21? This is another post-resurrection story. Uh, up until this point, we spent a lot of time focusing on the, the road to Emmaus and Jesus appearing to his remaining 11 disciples, stories of which many of the Gospels have different parallel accounts. But here, John, in his Gospel, adds in another additional story that we don't get anywhere else. 
This happens after Jesus has risen from the dead, after he's appeared to his disciples, proven to them that he is indeed alive. And then the disciples have to wait and they have to know what in the world is going on. And and Simon Peter wants to make sense of this. And so he does the one thing that brings him a lot of comfort. He goes fishing. What is that, Roger? Did I hear you shout amen at that? I know. I I think I heard something from the back room. There you go. (laughs) That's where many of us want to go. But this was what what Simon had done before Jesus had called him. This was not only his vocation, this was his comfort zone. So I just imagine him wanting to clear his head, to clear his mind. And so he goes and invites the other disciples to come with him and to do what he knows how to do, something he can make sense of. And he goes fishing. And he has absolutely no luck whatsoever. So now we know this is a true story. Because catching no fish, right? And they're skunked. They have nothing there. And then as they're, as they're coming closer to shore, they see that there's somebody, a figure, that they, they can't quite recognize on the shore. And it's, it's Jesus. But once again, as has been the pattern, Jesus is able in his resurrected self to disguise his identity. And they don't recognize him at first. And then he shouts out to the boat, well, why didn't you guys try throwing your nets on the other side? Of course, they're like, well, whatever. Like, we haven't caught anything. And so they throw the nets on the other side. And what happens? They get a whole lot of fish, like a lot, full to bursting, more that they can haul into the boat. And it's at that moment when the gig is up, they know that this is Jesus because he has done this before. And Peter, in his haste, even jumps out of the boat early and runs to the shore to be with his Savior. And they, and they bring this fish back, and then they cook and eat fish for breakfast, which I think is another, you know, sketchy life choice. But that's what they did, fish for breakfast. And, uh, and here they are. And this is really where we enter into our passage today in verse 15 and following. Um, they are now eating this fish. And, and when they finish breakfast, Jesus asks Peter a very significant question. He looks at Simon Peter and says, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? One of my first questions was, what does Jesus mean by these? Is he referring to the fish or the act of fishing? Is he asking, Simon, do you love me more than fishing? This thing that you're good at, this thing you know how to do, do you love me more than that? Or is he referring to the rest of the disciples? Do you love me, asks Jesus, more than you love the other disciples? Or perhaps another situation is, is he asking Peter, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? And as odd as it might seem, it is most likely that last situation that is the most close to the truth. Peter was always adamant and outspoken about his love and loyalty to Jesus. He was the one that uh, spoke before he thought, which makes him my favorite disciple. Uh, And he was getting himself in trouble, but he would also declare who Jesus is. And he would say, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. He had lived in front of Jesus and the other followers this really outward, adamant love. And, and And so the other disciples would have known that. And I think that is the spirit of the question. Do you love me the most? Asks Jesus. And Peter responds by saying, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. It's true. Jesus is not asking this question out of a place of ignorance. He knows Peter's heart. He understands the love that he holds for him. He's not doing this because somehow he lacks information about who Peter is and what his stance is toward him. Jesus has another idea, another agenda, another reason for doing this all together. Peter knows this. He says, you know that I love you. But he also readily affirms his love for Jesus. And then Jesus tells Simon Peter to go feed my lambs. Feed my lambs, which is a, 
You know, when I tell my wife that I love her, I usually expect, you know, I love you too, coming back for me, but, but not feed my lambs. This is a very different type of response. And now Jesus is going off the beaten path here a little bit. Something unexpected, but again, very purposeful. Especially because the story is taking place in the Gospel of John, it is very easy for us to go back to John chapter 10, where Jesus calls himself the Good Shepherd, and to realize that his sheep, his lambs, his flock, has always been one of the ways in which he describes those who truly follow him. And as Jesus is now, after his resurrection, preparing to ascend back into heaven, he is equipping, he's sending, he's calling Peter and the other disciples to then look after his followers when he is gone. Feed my lambs. Give them spiritual nourishment and care. Now, this was an awkward enough conversation for Simon Peter, I'm sure, but they got more awkward because then as they ate a little bit more, Jesus asked him again, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And it's really profound how verse 17 describes that Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And the word for grieved is important. It means to be full of sadness or remorse. And I believe remorse is that, is that part of this that we hang on to because what has happened here is Jesus has now brought up three times this, this request, this, this ask for, for love. And it parallels very intentionally the three times that Peter denied even knowing Jesus. And, and, and then Peter is reminded of this, and he's full of all the remorse of what he did when he left Jesus when he needed him the most. That is why he is truly grieved. Peter is reminded of his weakest moment, how he abandoned Jesus during his greatest time of need, and even after all of his vocal support, all of his loyalty, cutting off people's ears and speaking up and defending Jesus, he was the one that denied him. And that left. It didn't have the courage or the loyalty that Christ needed. Jesus now did not ask this question three times just to make Peter feel guilty. Though that remorse, I'm sure, was extremely heartfelt. Jesus has a, a much kinder reason for doing this. He asked this question three times not to make him feel guilty or to convict him, but to very intentionally restore him to right relationship. Jesus, is, in essence, is giving Peter a chance to redo those three times where he denied him. I know you said you did not know me, but now you say you love me. You said you did not know me, but now you say that you love me. You did not know me, and now I know that you love me. Jesus is forgiving Peter. He's giving him that opportunity to know that that love is returned, that forgiveness is given, that he truly is still a follower of Christ, and that truly he has still been given this mission to go and to feed his sheep. This is Jesus' way of making Peter good as new. But Jesus was also using this moment to restore Peter to his mission and to his calling. He didn't just say, okay, Peter, now I know that you love me. Good. We're good. All right. That's it. He said, no, now that I know that you love me, now that I've restored you to myself, now that you've restored even to the other disciples, go feed my sheep. You have work to do. You're on a mission. Jesus foretells that Peter would follow this mission, would follow Jesus even unto his death, which we read in verse 19. is is quite the, the mysterious thing that Jesus says in verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you 
and carry you where you do not want to go. And if that's all that we are left with, then I know you'd have some questions at the end of this sermon. What in the world did Jesus mean? So we're very fortunate that John anticipated this and he explained it for us. He says, this was said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Peter was, was restored to following Jesus and he would follow him loyally and obediently. He would follow him even unto his death. And that death would be by crucifixion. And after all of that, Jesus says to, to Simon Peter once more, simply and profoundly, follow me. And what we have, what John has given us in this account, in this story, and what Jesus did is the bookend of calling of, of Peter and the other disciples. So if we go back to Luke 5, for example, we see a story where Simon Peter and the other disciples are out on, on the lake and they're fishing. And how much fish did they catch? None. And then they went to the shore and there was Jesus. And what did Jesus say? He said, cast out your boat a little bit, put your net out the side. And then how many fish did they catch? A lot. Two boatfuls. Even more that time. You're really on the ball here, Barry. This is great. Right? So they caught a lot of fish. And then what happens after that? Jesus says to Simon and the others, follow me. So what do we read in all of John 21? Jesus is just reminding, restoring, forgiving, and sending his disciples. He says, your calling is still good. You are still with me. You are still called to go and be my disciples and to feed my sheep. Jesus has forgiven Peter. He is restored. Now, so much of this story is unique to Peter. We've talked about his calling. We've talked about his denial and then his restoration and now his mission. And yet there is so much that pertains to us as a church as well and as our, us as Christ followers. It starts with this very big question that each and every one of us need to answer because Jesus asks us very clearly, do you love me? How have you answered this question? Do you truly love Jesus? Now, we need to understand what we mean by love. And so to do this, I'm going to actually uh, use 1 John, the letter of 1 John, as a bit of a companion piece. So we're going to go back and forth a bit to help explain to us what type of love Jesus is referring to here when he says, do you love me? And this love, this true love of Jesus, begins with an acknowledgement of who Christ truly is. I love this because it's always been part of Peter's love. In Matthew 16, 16, God reveals to Peter the truth about Jesus, and he is the first to declare that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's part of his own story. And then again, uh, <clears throat> it is given to us in 1 John this reminder that we cannot love someone that we do not know. Our faith journey begins with acknowledging who Jesus truly is. We read this in 1 John 2, verses 22 and 23. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So John is reminding us that to love Jesus begins with acknowledging him for who he is, that he is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one of God, that he is more than that. He is the Son of God himself, God made flesh, and that he is the one and only Savior that we need for the forgiveness of our sins. This is where our love begins. Which is why we often start with a prayer or a moment of commitment. Our faith is never just saying a prayer. Our faith is never just making a commitment at one time. But that is a wonderful starting place for our faith journey. Because it is when we can acknowledge and believe in who Jesus truly is. And yet that acknowledgement must move to personal trust in him. You see, far more than a worldview or a belief system... 
this love trusts Jesus with our lives and even with our eternal lives. Where you say, I'm not just acknowledging who you are, I'm throwing myself at your mercy. I'm leaning on you to get me through today and tomorrow. I am trusting in you and you alone when I stand before the judgment seat of God. Peter also displayed this trust when he was the, the first disciple to walk on water. Jesus was there walking on the water and he invites Peter out. Sure enough, he walks on water for a little bit and then he sees the waves and he freaks out and he sinks. But that's okay. We've established Peter isn't perfect. But he has displayed this trust in Jesus. It is part of the love that he holds for him. Belief is best described by trust. Do you trust Jesus with your whole heart, mind, and soul? I mean, trust can be hard to come by for many different reasons, as this video will show. Fall, and we're just, it'll be an exercise in building trust uh, between one another. So Harrison, if you don't mind going first, uh, step up here on this chair and close your eyes. All right, and then everybody fill in. And we're going to ask you to fall, and then they will catch you. So you have to trust us. I'm going to count to three. Just relax and fall, okay? One, two, three. No, wait, no, no! <laughs> Trust is hard to come by sometimes. <clears throat> I hope that's not staged, because that would just, that video makes my name, right? There's different reasons why trust is hard to come by. Sometimes it's because we find other people not trustworthy. And, and to, be, to be fair, none of us are completely trustworthy. But Jesus is. And often when we find it hard to trust him, we need to ask ourselves, which way are we leaning? Am I trying to do this on my own? Or am I trying to fall into the arms of Jesus that are waiting there to catch me? It's a trust that takes us and gives us confidence right up until the very end. So I was going to say, this is trusted not only for our lives, but for our eternal lives. Uh, we're reminded of this in 1 John chapter 4, verse 17, which says that we have, when we trust in, 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 in God, we have this type of love. It says, by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. And when we go through our life and trust and throw ourselves into that trust of Jesus, then we can stand confidently knowing that we have eternal life in him. And that this confidence doesn't come from who we are or how good we've been or how much good we've done or even how obedient we've been. Our confidence is found only in who Jesus is. And that trust will never fail us. That gives us the confidence that we need. So true love begins with this acknowledgement of who Jesus is it moves to a personal trust in him, and it's revealed through our obedience. Sometimes we can have these doubts creep up in our mind. Well, how can I be sure that I'm, I really love God? I mean, you say, do you truly love Jesus? Well, I think I do. How can I know for sure? And, and those are valid questions, especially when we know that our emotions are so easily swayed and manipulated. I mean, if, if love is just a feeling, then, then how trustworthy is that really? But thankfully, here again, the Bible is not silent. And John continues to describe to us that the true love is revealed through our obedience. That is the evidence that we need to be confident that our love is genuine for Christ. Again, I'll go to 1 John chapter 5, verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. And so there is always this pattern in 1 John of, of truly loving God means we will love his, uh, his children, our brothers and sisters, and that means we will also obey his commandments. And though these are some of the ways in which this love is revealed to be true. And we don't have to worry. We don't have to second guess. We can look at the obedience in our life and we can take heart and know for sure. 
Now, this, our obedience does not earn the love of Christ, but it does reveal it. And in the same way, um, persistent disobedience can also show a lack of trust in our Heavenly Father. Now, right now, I've got the, the privilege of parenting a three-year-old child. And I will, I will say that I love him dearly, but he's not always very obedient. That's just something that happens. And, and he doesn't have this maturity yet to connect how his disobedience or disrespect would, would affect his love for me. That's not a connection he's making. He's just reacting in the moment. And I, and I feel, I, I take it personally, like, how can you love me? And then, and then I'll listen to anything I say. And then I was convicted this week because I feel that way as a parent. And then God says, hey, hey, if, if we look at you as the child and me as a heavenly father, <laughs> have you made that connection? You know, does my life show that through obedience I love my Savior? Or does God, my heavenly father, look at me sometimes like I look at my child and say, hey, you say that you love me. But the way you're acting doesn't make me feel that way. It doesn't look that way right now. That obedience is such an important part of our love. And yet it was not just love that Jesus gave to Peter as he restored him. He teaches Simon then in this love to feed my sheep. And in this back and forth that, that Jesus and, and Simon have, he actually uses three different phrases there. For one, each of those three times, he says, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, and then feed my sheep. And it's in that second time that I think we find a very important word. The word for tend is to, is to actually shepherd his sheep. It's a very holistic idea. It means you need to guard them and feed them and protect them and care for them and help them when they're sick. All of that, tend, shepherd, this is the idea. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. You are an under-shepherd. And it's your job, Peter, and my followers to look after one another, to care for them and to protect them and to feed them. And for sure, sheep need caring for. This is one thing that we sometimes forget when we see this analogy because we don't, we don't have a lot of livestock or there may be a lot of sheep here, but they're dumb. So whenever you say, oh, I'm a good sheep or, you know, I'm part of the flock of Jesus, just remind yourself that that means you're kind of dumb. So uh, here, here's some further proof. I'm full of video clips today. All right, look at that. It's perfect. Oh, man. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> Jesus knows this. He says, Peter, they're going to need some looking after, right? Okay, and this is, uh, we need to help each other out. And again, I know, I know I'm not trying to belittle you, but we're just recognizing how much we need Christ, and we're recognizing how much he is called to help one another. Peter was given this instruction from Jesus to care for his followers. His followers, which would later formally become the early church, the church that Jesus founded, the church is his, founded by him, founded for him. We are his flock. And this was given from Jesus to Peter in a position of leadership. And so leadership is a part of this. He says, listen, I've called you to be a leader in the church. And that's why as we continue to read through some of the letters of the New Testament, we see that shepherding becomes a way. That's actually what pastor means. Pastor means to be a shepherd. Right? That's, that's part of how we describe the role of what it means to be in any type of leadership in the church. <clears throat> and as we've mentioned a few times, Jesus is the good shepherd. And those who love Jesus care for his flock like he does. Um, there is a, a part of his teaching in the good shepherd, again, that... that that shows just how important this is and how we're, we are not the, the good shepherd the way that Jesus is. So I'm going to skip to John 10, read for you verses 11 and 13. <clears throat> Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He, was, who, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, 
sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he has a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So what is Jesus saying to Peter? He's like, I need more than a hired hand. I need somebody who loves these people as much as I do. I need somebody who is loyal and will not turn tail and run at the next sign of trouble. I need someone who lives their life laying down their life for the sake of those who follow me just as I did. And what I love is that Peter was clearly listening to this. We know that he took this to heart. We know that this is the spirit and the attitude that he approached his ministry in the early church. And it's still a teaching of Christ that he wanted to pass down to the next generation of church leaders. We see this in 1 Peter, written by Peter himself, chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. So he says to others near the end of his life, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, he will receive the unfading crown of glory. So this teaching of Christ was, was found a good listener in Peter, and he lived this out, and then he also passed that down to the next generation of leaders, and that still remains true today. And church, this is part of my commitment to you, that I true, as your pastor, want to live this out. I want to be not just a hired hand, but to, to, to try to still have this spirit of being willing to lay down my life for those that have been placed under my care, ultimately those that are all placed under the care of Christ. And this is more than just humble leadership. This is uh, about every believer proving their love for Jesus through how they treat others which, as I mentioned before, is another pattern that we see over and over again in 1 John, this time in chapter 4, verse 19. We love because God first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And so we know this. This has to be true among us. We need to have the same spirit. I mean, unity isn't just getting along. Unity is looking at each other and say, I would put my life down for you. Now, that's something completely different. And we do this not because of how we feel about other people, but about how Jesus feels about them. He says, I have laid my life down for my sheep. I am willing to go that far for them, and I want you to see them as I see them. I think sometimes this perspective shift can be so helpful. I remember being in a marriage seminar a few years ago, back before I had it all sorted out, and I was still learning things about marriage. And, uh, and so, yeah, we just, uh, Karen and I shared our 15th uh, wedding anniversary, so we've got it made now. We're just, we're all down, downhill, uphill? I don't know what, it, I'm going to stop right now. We're at this marriage seminar, and then I was challenged to think of, we often think of ourselves as a child of God. It says, you know, spouses, I want you to remember that your spouse is a child of God. It means not only is God your heavenly father, God is your heavenly father-in-law. And I was like, oh, <laughs> that's different. So when God calls you home and he says, how did you treat my daughter? You better have a good answer for him. And you know what? That seems maybe very straightforward, but that, that changed my thinking. I needed to think of, of my wife, Karen, through how God views her and, and, and serve her in the way that, that she deserves because of the love that Christ has for her. And that's true in each and every one of us here at church, that, that we're not just brothers and sisters. We don't just get along because we see things the same way or have chosen to, to, to champion unity. We get along because we want to continually see each other in the way that Jesus sees the other person as someone worth living for someone worth dying for. 
someone worth bleeding for, someone worth saving, of infinite, infinite value. That is how we can look after each other and all do this task of tending sheep. But true love, our last point I'd like to make is that true love is loyal, even to death. So yeah, we acknowledge who Jesus is, and, and, and we want to make sure um, that we have trust in him. It's revealed through our obedience, and that we, we, we look after each other by, by loving our brothers and sisters and laying down our lives. But, but that true love needs to continue on. It needs to persist. It needs to be loyal even to the end. So much of the Old Testament is proof of God's loyal covenant love. That word said means loyal covenant love. That's how God has described himself and shown himself in the Hebrew scriptures, and he has over and over again always held up his end of the bargain. He has proven himself to be a loyal God, even when his people fell short. And it was that type of love that Peter failed to show when he denied Jesus three times. He was not completely loyal. That's why he needed to be restored. Loyalty can be in, 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 a, in a hot commodity these days, in short supply. And as a big sports fan, I think nothing shows a lack of loyalty more than the way sports is right now. You have players that will play for one team for a long time, but if they can make more money, they're going to go somewhere else in a heartbeat. And you'll have teams that will just get anything they can out of that player, and as soon as they're past his prime, then they'll discard him to the side. Probably the league that shows a lack of loyalty the most is the CFL. It's going to hurt me to see Kenny Lawler catching passes for the Edmonton Elks this season. I'm like, come on! Don't you want to win another Grey Cup? Don't go to Edmonton. But of course, we know that Ryder fans must have felt this way for the last two seasons, watching Willie Jefferson anchor a defensive line to back-to-back Grey Cup champions, even just a few seasons removed from wearing the green. Loyalty is hard to come by. It's, it's not in sports, that's for sure. Is it in our relationships? Is it in our relationship with each other? Is it in our relationship with Jesus? Because this was the type of love that, that Jesus called Simon Peter back into, even though it would cost him everything. Peter says again, you were going to follow me. I'm going to restore you. I'll give you this mission, and it will end the same way that my mission did. You will be put to death. This will cost you your life. You will be crucified. And he foretells this and promises Peter this, and then Peter somehow has to keep carrying on his life, knowing that this this is his end, and it could happen at any moment. He's aware that his life will be short. And when Jesus says at the end of our passage, follow me, he is inviting Peter to walk that same path, which included crucifixion. Now, maybe some of you have heard the urban legend that that Peter was crucified upside down because he said it was not fitting for him to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. And do we know if that's true? Uh, We have absolutely no idea. That's just a story that's been passed down. But whether that's true or not, we do know that Peter paid the ultimate price for his loyal love of Jesus. No more denial, no more hesitation, he, his entire life and death was lived to glorify God. It is not likely that you and I will be called to be martyrs. But we are called to be willing to die for our love of Jesus. After all, this is the exact type of love that he first showed us. I'm going to read for you 1 John 3.16, not John 3.16, 1 John 3.16. It says something quite profound. By this we know love, that he, being Jesus, laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives It doesn't even say for him. It says for our brothers. That's tricky. That's a pretty tough call. I mean, if someone asks, would you lay down your life for your wife and kids? I'm like, absolutely. But like Steve, I don't know. I'm not sure. I, I should probably. That's a tough call sometimes. Sorry, Steve. You're going to ask a lot of questions at the end of this, I can tell. 
But the reality is we don't need to live in these hypotheticals of our, our family cowering behind us and us laying down our lives or a gunman coming into the chapel who will be the one willing to step up and stop him from, from, from hurting other people. Well, the reality is that, that, that being asked to lay down our life has much more to do with how we live than how we die. That is the call. That's where this true love is poured out. That is the example that we follow. We need to be willing to live for Jesus. And Peter's loyal love brought God glory through his death. And our lives must seek the same goal, to bring God glory. Ironically enough, we bring God glory when we live as those who truly love Jesus. And so we find ourselves in the same place as Peter. As the worship team comes back up, we're going to respond in song before we have our Q&A. I want to remind us all, of what Jesus is doing, not just for Peter here, but for all of us. He is is asking us to believe in who he truly is. He is the Son of God. He is the Christ. He is our Savior. He's asking us to trust in him, not just with our daily lives, but with our eternal lives, so that we can be confident no matter what comes our way. He's asking us to reveal this love through obedience and so that the the words that we we say would, would be backed up by the things that we do and that he would be sure of the love in our hearts and that we would be confident in it as well. And he wants this loyal love to endure until the end, especially when things get tough. Live for me. Be willing to die for me. And when you do that, you, just like Simon Peter, will be made good as new.